Do you know a woman who is driving positive change, growth, or innovation in her organization or community? The second annual Success Women of Influence Awards are underway. So whether a friend, a family member, or peer, give the recognition she deserves. The Success Women of Influence Awards honor, celebrate, and empower the extraordinary women whose contributions have impacted their industries and their communities, and the personal and professional lives of those in their world. Visit success.com slash W-O-I to nominate the women of influence in your life today. When you live your life this way, you miss out on the world outside of the boundaries that you've created for yourself, right? Like you live in a bubble of rules and anything that falls outside of those rules, you just don't do it. So I think that's a huge opportunity, or I would say miss for people who have over-optimized their lives. I think the second downside is that that tension reveals itself in other ways, right? So you've restricted yourself so much that more often than not, it's like a kid who's been following the rules the entire lives. And then they go to college and then it's like, oh, no, yeah. Wild out. Yeah. same thing happens with adults or people who are like living with restrictive diets. Like oftentimes it's like a tipping point that they just cross over and they can't come back. But I think the biggest consequence if I had to choose is the last one, which is like your worldview is just really, really small. Like, again, like you've, you live by these rules. This is what you're going to follow. You don't learn anything. You don't experience anything. You don't meet people who have a different point of view. And all of that, I think, has an opportunity to kind of have you miss out on things that might actually be beneficial for you. Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And today we're talking about optimization culture. Okay. You know, everybody optimizes, but there are certain groups of people that optimize just a little bit more, like money people. And so today we're going to try to unpack that and answer when is too much optimization probably like pathological? <laughs> so, and then we'll give you some tips for how to prevent over-optimizing. All right, let's do it. So before we get started, I just want to say the latest issue of Success Magazine is in mailboxes and on magazine shelves nationwide. It's the self-awareness issue, and it is packed with stories from successful entrepreneurs and change makers who've overcome tremendous odds to make their wildest dreams come true. So if you're looking for a super heavy and beautiful dose of inspiration to finish the year strong, this one is definitely for you. And if you look on the inside of that cover, you might actually see some familiar faces. It's us. It's us. Surprise, (laughs) surprise. It's us. So shout out to the team of Success Magazine. Keep pumping out that great work and we're happy to be a part of it. All right. So let's talk optimization. Have you ever heard the term magical thinking? Magical thinking? Yes, I have. It always makes me think of like, you know... <laughs> the, the, the wizard or something like that. Magical thinking, for those that aren't familiar, is where you assume that favorable conditions will last forever. And it's one of those like pandemic phrases that I learned a couple years ago and have probably used way too much the last few years. But it's what it's like when I think about today's topic, optimization is my favorite form of magical thinking. Okay. Like I just I love when people optimize to a metric to the extent that they think it's going to last forever, but no metric stays still. Like (laughs) whether it's weight, calorie intake, net worth, like it's all fluid. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I do know that you have been using that word. I didn't realize that you were introduced to it a couple of years ago, but to your point, I'm recollecting some of the conversations that we've had and 
you have been talking a lot about magical thinking. So I'm <laughs> well, because I've been a victim of it. I, okay. I used to fall for magical You're thinking. You're a victim of magical thinking. <laughs> you need a prescription? <laughs> well, I, I enjoy it in certain areas of my life, but there are some areas where it works to your detriment. Like yeah. when you only assume positive outcomes, you prevent yourself from planning for like what is inevitably going to happen when things fall out of place. Yeah. My first thought when it comes to magical thinking really has more to do with like vacation planning for some reason. Like, you know what, like you're trying to book a vacation and you've got a couple of different pricing options. There's always like good, better, and then there's like best. And best is the one that is like equipped with all the things, all the great experiences, like the optimal experience. But in reality, you just kind of learn. And sometimes the hard way after spending more money than you really need, that you didn't really need to do all that. Right. But obviously when it comes to like money and we're thinking about optimization and, and, and what we'll eventually get to with this podcast episode, is it really about just trying to squeeze out the best option or trying to aim for the purest yeah. form of something and like how that gets in the way of your financial lives as opposed to just like accepting that some things will just naturally be inefficient and imperfect yes. and just rolling with the punches. I have a theory about optimization where I feel like it's a side effect of all of the smartphones and gadgets that have mm. entered our lives over the past decade. Because when I couple that with all of the management training that I got after I graduated that taught me, you know, what gets measured gets done. Yes. I am constantly measuring things. Yes. And if you think about it, we've never been inundated with so many metrics. Yeah. And in any given day, especially if you sit at a desk job, you know how many unread emails you yeah. have. You can learn what the stock prices are, what your resting heart rate is, how many followers you yeah. gained or lost, what humidity outside is. We just have access to so many metrics. And while some of them are valuable, a lot of them are not but they're in our face and people have been trained to think that there is this optimal benchmark level of each of them yeah. that must be maintained at all times. Yeah. It also makes me think of when you were getting back back in the day, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there, you're going through your annual review and you've got like these benchmarks, these metrics, these things that are measuring how productive or how good you are at your job. And what I've always found to be interesting is that there seems to be like, at least for me and in, in my career, that there was a little bit of acceptance that like these numbers are important, but we also know that when people know that those numbers are so important, they change their behaviors, not just exactly. to accomplish those numbers, but there's like a side effect to it where it actually impacts like culture and mood and all these other things. But I think it also makes me think about real estate investors and like this idea that metrics and data matters to your point. And it does. I'm not trying to like, you know, dismiss the importance of quantitative measures. Obviously, that's really important, especially when you're spending a lot of money and you're looking to make a lot of money. But you think about things like the 1% rule mm -hmm. with real estate investors, which is this idea that you should not pay too much basically for your property, especially if it's something that you're looking to rent out, that around 1% of that, if you're looking to rent it out, should be what you're aiming for as your target rent collected or higher uh, if you're able to do that. But you don't want to pay too much for it because obviously there's a downside to overpaying for the property. Now, that's important, but that doesn't mean that you never break that rule or that there's right. never a good deal or a good reason to buy a property that doesn't quite fit that particular rule because it's so sharp that it's kind of limiting. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you brought up landlords because at the end of the day, like I said at the top of the episode, I do think there are certain groups of people who try to optimize much more than the average person. So if yeah. you've been listening to this and you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. 
you may not be one of these people, but I think, and this is probably generalizing a little bit, but people like chefs or like parents or people with multiple stakeholders at work, anyone that has demands on their time or their money that they don't directly control is probably more likely to optimize versus just organizing their day on vibes and (laughs) mood alone, right? And the reason that we're doing this episode is because there is such a thing as too much optimization and there are negative consequences that come with that. We see it in business. If you can remember the big Wells Fargo lawsuit where they had the team so focused on getting people to sign up for credit cards that their employees started engaging in illegal practices. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. We see it in our personal lives where we get so focused on outcomes that we're willing to accept broken relationships and burnt out brains as collateral damage or just part of the process, whatever we convince ourselves is normal. Mm -hmm. But I think what ultimately drives over-optimization is a pursuit of perfection. We optimize because we convince ourselves that anything less than perfect, anything less than this optimal benchmark number is settling. And that's just not the case. Yeah. yeah. Some of that is just natural. Yeah. I kind of want to come to the defense of the optimizers out there. because, <laughs> First of all, you called out chefs, which I think was a particular jab. <laughs> um, as a former chef, I find that to be a little bit offensive. But I also, even as I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about my very early days of like creating spreadsheets and managing my budget and having like laser focus on how much money was coming in and how much money was coming out and like literally feeling pain every single time <laughs> that something was off or broken. Right. So if you're an optimizer, you're out there and you're one of those kind of people, like I feel you if you were offended and I apologize on her behalf. Now, <laughs> When we're talking about things like rules, right? These rules, they, I mean, indefensive rules, like they exist for a reason. They guide us, they create boundaries. And I think they help to keep us away from places we don't want to go or situations we don't want to fall into, but they also have a cost to them. So I think some people create or choose to follow these rules because it creates to your point, like some certainty in their lives. And when you feel out of control, if you can't like bear the cost of something being out of control, like accumulating debt, for example, you rely on things like rules as a way to shield you from that, to protect you. And I think optimizing is really just like a protective measure or a defensive measure. So now that we've had like the fortune of meeting a lot of people over the years and learning about their financial lives and naturally you just kind of identify some patterns and I hate to do that because I don't want to generalize people, but you have a hundred conversations. You can pretty much say, all right, well, I've heard this more than once before. This is a theme. This is a theme, right? So there are some themes. And I think one of them is like optimizers are rule followers. And the idea of following rules is generally not restricted just to their financial life. Like it, it bleeds into just about every aspect of their life. It's like a core philosophy. Yeah. The second thing I would say is that, and it feels, I feel bad saying it, but like it oftentimes comes from some type of traumatic experience, like something that they've gone through when things were out of control and they don't want to go back to that place. And so those rules are like guardrails, like this is my lane. This is what I do. This is how much I spend. I am not going back to like living in poverty. I'm never going to let somebody like fire me again. Like it's, it's, it's a response in a lot of ways to some negative situation that they've gone through. And the third thing I would say that they do, which kind of supports the idea that like these rules are, are, are a way to protect themselves is that optimizers tend to surround themselves with other 
optimizers, yes. like this comfort. It's an optimizer echo chamber. Let's optimize together. <laughs> like, let's talk about how crazy the rest of the world is for, <laughs> you know, doing all these things. Now, I, I do think that there are some downsides to this, right? So first is that when you live your life this way, you miss out on the world outside of the boundaries that you've created for yourself, right? Like you live in a bubble of rules and anything that falls outside of those rules, you just don't do it. So I think that's a huge opportunity or I would say miss for people who have over-optimized their lives. I think the second downside is that that tension reveals itself in other ways, right? So you've restricted yourself so much that more often than not, it's like a kid who's been following the rules the entire lives and then they go to college and then it's like, oh, no, yeah. Wild out. Yeah. same thing happens with adults or people who are like, living with restrictive diets, like oftentimes it's like a tipping point that they just cross over and they can't come back. But I think the biggest consequence, if I had to choose, is the last one, which is like your worldview is just really, really small. Like again, like you've, you live by these rules. This is what you're going to follow. You don't learn anything. You don't experience anything. You don't meet people who have a different point of view. And all of that, I think, has an opportunity to kind of have you miss out on things that might actually be beneficial for you. Like I'm clear that like my musical tastes, for example, are very limited right now. And that is by design. Like I am not a big fan of a lot of things that are in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And there's a downside to that. When I'm talking to some of these kids and they're you know, talking <laughs> about some of the stuff, I sound super old right now. Yeah. But when you I, go out, you don't know none of the I, songs. I know none of the songs. I can't watch any award show. Can't rap along. I can't rap along. I can't do any of it <laughs> because I have I've created these boundaries. And I think that's the same thing that happens with people when they're thinking about their money and what they do and what they think about and what they invest in. I'm all for simplicity. But I also think it's important sometimes to expose yourself to the world outside of the rules that you've created for yourself. Yeah, it's funny because ironically, in our quest to become these perfectly tuned robots who can always adjust to this benchmark, one of the places where we can learn that too much optimization against a goal can actually make things go horribly bad is in machine learning. So for those that aren't familiar, machine learning is basically how you teach a computer to learn from examples. So you would feed a computer lots of data, like pictures of a dog, tell it what's what, and then the computer can figure out based on the patterns on its own, when it sees a new picture, it can determine that it's a dog, right? right? So in other words, you give it this subset of dog pictures then and hope that that's enough for it to generalize and then you can correct it along the way. And that works until it doesn't. So some new research came out that shows that if you train the model past a certain point, something called overfitting happens, where the model is only good at recognizing the dogs that you've given it a picture for. Mm. And so if you show it another species of a dog, maybe one that you haven't trained it on, it can't even recognize that it's a dog. It only knows Mm. what you've trained it on. And since it's impossible for you to train it on every single species of dog, it actually breaks the model because now it don't recognize dogs at all. It only recognizes what you've given it. It's very similar to when students and teachers optimize for test scores. They know enough to pass the questions on the test, but they struggle with the actual subject matter. It's kind of like that. And the reason that overfitting occurs is because whenever you're trying to optimize anything, you're rarely optimizing for the thing itself. You're optimizing for a proxy. A proxy is just a side effect, a side measurement of the main goal. So when you optimize, you're optimizing for something that looks like your goal, but it's slightly different. And that difference matters. In the computer example, the goal is for the machine to be able to recognize a dog. But the proxies are photos of the dog. There's no actual dog involved. And in personal finance, the goal might be to save money, but the proxy or the side measurement is your budget. 
right? The goal might be to save for retirement and the proxy for that might be your net worth calculation. Yeah. So again, the hard truth is that you can almost never optimize directly for a goal. All you can do is making something else that looks like the goal better. Yeah, I think which is a mind like it's a it's a mind bleed. (laughs) It's like I'm aiming for something that I think will give me the thing that I actually want. Yeah. But if I aim too hard, I'm going to miss the thing that I actually want. Yeah. No, you brought up retirement. and And I think you're right. I think you do see this quite a bit when people are especially when they're looking to like calculate how much they should save for retirement. And again, so much of this boils down to the sense of certainty. Like, we all want to know how much money do I need so I can save them? Like, yeah. The, the, <laughs> no one can tell you. You actually can't even answer that question for yourself. No. no one knows. But you do have to have some confidence in knowing that it's a moving target and that anything could happen. It means that you might have some regrets. And, but exactly. you have to sort of learn to live with that. And, and I think you also see it when, whenever you see these articles, and I always cringe when I see them, but it's like a publication pushes out an article that says that when you're this age, you should have this much thousand dollars. And then when you reach this age, and that should have turned to this million dollar amount of money. And it's like, more often than not, I think it demotivates people yeah. because like at the end of the day, the answer is like, it just kind of depends. It depends on your medical history. It depends on what the stock market is doing, where you're living, where you plan on living, how much you've saved. You can only save so much based on how much you make and so on and so on. There are so many other factors. There's no way to truly know how much you're going to need. And so spending so much time trying to optimize your budget and obsessing over your investment portfolio or whatever it is, like more often than not, like can have some really, really bad consequences. One of the things that we've said in our book is with respect to becoming a millionaire, while it is without question a lofty goal and an important goal or a benchmark that people want to reach, but it's not an identity. No. And a lot of people get so obsessed about it. And I know I said I cringed a lot. I feel like this is maybe the third time I'm saying it, but whenever I see someone and they're so passionate and they're so hopped up or hyped up on all of this stuff that they're obsessed with like becoming a millionaire and, and hitting that goal. And when they finally do, it's like, all right, well, what what, what did you think was going to happen? And I remember those days. I, I've been yeah. there and it was like, oh my gosh, I remember feeling like I always use solitaire as the example. It was like, oh, I wanted my screen to change. I wanted <laughs> I wanted to see the deck of cards. And it does for that day. If you like announce it, sure, you get a lot of congratulations. Correct. You, you get support from the community, but Correct. like, you still got to mow your lawn. You still got to take that trash you out. You might still have to go to work. You like, still got to go to work. Great, yeah. Great. You had a glass of wine and you, <laughs> now you got to pay for it. Like right. it, it doesn't change anything. And and even that is always interesting to me when I tell people that. I was like, what happens when you hit this goal, right? You were so excited about it. You hit this goal. And let's say tomorrow the market softens and you lose 3% of your net worth. Like, do you feel any less of a millionaire? Yeah. Less confident in your ability to survive? No. It doesn't change much, right? So I hate to be like the bubble buster here. There's value in that. You can set those goals, but don't become so obsessed about those things that they become a core part of your identity because I'm telling you right now, it's not going to lead you anywhere that you really want to be. This sounds like a good time to take a break and we will be right back. Are you ready to supercharge your life and get access to more opportunities than you've ever dreamed of? Then join me, James Whitaker, in the Win the Day Accelerator. Presented by Success, this entire eight-part program has been created to help you activate your winning life once and for all. You'll gain clarity on your goals and purpose. You'll learn how to quickly overcome challenges, and you'll get proven tips and frameworks that will deliver you big results fast in all areas of your life. 
So if you're ready to win, join me in the Win the Day Accelerator. To sign up, visit success.com slash WTD. All right, y'all know we don't believe in a numberless experience. So let's just talk about some tips or maybe some preventative measures that can stop you from over-optimizing, help you optimize to the extent to which it's helpful, but kind of put some brakes on before you go a bridge too far, as my grandma says. So the first one is to collect multiple metrics. And the reason for this is anytime you reduce things down to a single metric, you're at risk because it creates this tunnel vision and you increase the likelihood of optimizing against that metric at the expense of other crucial factors. Mm -hmm. So once you decide on the multiple metrics that you want to measure, ideally they're a combination of qualitative and quantitative or a mix of behavioral and mathematical or art and science, whatever you want to call it. So let's say that you're stressed out about money and you have this goal to improve your financial situation. The metrics that you choose should include things like staying under budget, adding money to your emergency fund or sending extra credit card payments. But they should also include some stress reduction techniques like meditating for five minutes a day, practicing breathing with yoga two times a week, journaling through your difficult feelings so that you have this balance of art and science or behavioral and mathematical. Yeah, I remember when we started to incorporate those kinds of things into our conversations, it was such a relief because I think it really made those conversations much smoother for you. And back then I was kind of on the bad side of things. Like I was over-optimizing. I was very much obsessed with the quantitative aspects to it, but then I could also see on a day-to-day basis what I was getting out of doing that. And I was like, all right, well, this is not really good for your romantic life. So (laughs) let's figure out like what a good balance is. And I think just one of the other benefits of adding in that almost journal or moment of pause or like like a little note or comment to something that is not numerical that you can reflect back on is that it just allows you to ask that question like, all right, well, was it worth it? Whatever it is, was that worth it? Like, great. Before that, I would just celebrate, wow, we saved $1,000 this month. And mm-hmm. typically we were budgeted to save 800. We must have done something right. But how did that feel? Exactly. Right? Is that sustainable? Before you go ahead and say, oh, well, this, that's, is the new normal. this is the new normal. Yeah. This is the new benchmark. How did that make you feel? Right? Did you like that balance? Or do you want to give yourself license to spend a little bit more and see what that might lead you to? So when you create that list, you want to make sure that everything can't actually be measured nor should it be. So you don't want to nickel and dime quality time, let's say spent with your loved ones. Like, yes, you can budget that in because you have to pay for a flight to go to Texas and New York. I'm being very specific here, (laughs) but you can't put a price on like an opportunity to see your loved ones, which might be for the last time. Exactly. Food is an important one as well. I would add food to that list, just about every list. Like there's a point where when you lower the cost, you're actually also lowering nutritional value for yourself. Yes, and the quality. Or having a negative impact. You're probably creating some other issue downstream that you're likely going to have to pay for. Or sometimes it just doesn't taste good. Right. Like that's an important metric. You know what I mean? So figure out how you rate the things that you like. And if you find that you might want to pay, and I'm being very specific here. Throw away the, the, the corn syrup syrup. You know what? Like, can we just do maple syrup, right? Like I'm team maple syrup. All the other stuff that's on the shelf, just throw that stuff away. <laughs> the last example I would say that I think is really relevant here is for people who are like really convicted in like some type of religious or spiritual practice. That's important. You don't want to over-optimize to the point 
where you are sort of decentering yourself from the things that should define you in a much better way than the achieving some financial goal. So you want to make yeah. sure that you're finding this balance between all of the things, the things that you can measure and the things that you couldn't possibly be able to fit on a spreadsheet. Yeah. It actually reminds me of some advice that I got early in my management career when I too was an over-optimizer. There's this guy named Andy Grove who is well-known for his philosophies on management and leadership. And he always believed that you should pair every single metric with a counter metric that measures the adverse consequences Ooh, I like that. of that. So going back to the example from the beginning of the episode when we were talking about test taking, if you have a metric to raise standardized test scores at a school, you'd want to pair that with a counter metric that assesses critical thinking or creativity to account for the consequences of teaching to the test. Right. You want to know that students are getting a well-rounded education, so you give them both metrics. In your personal finances, you might have a metric to aggressively invest for the future, but doing that too much might leave you financially vulnerable for the stuff that's happening today. So a good counter metric might be to monitor your emergency fund savings to ensure that you have sufficient coverage for the things that happen today versus in the future. Right. Or maybe you have a goal to aggressively pay off your student loans like we talked about last week. That's great. But when we're talking about reducing debt over a long period of time, it's very easy to develop tunnel vision and forget to celebrate milestones or to ease up when it's needed or warranted. So a good counter metric might be to monitor your overall debt relative to your income. And as that moves down, maybe you take time to celebrate and reward yourself. Or if your income is disrupted, you kind of come off the gas of paying down your debt to figure out how you can then rebuild that ratio to make sure that you're not adversely affecting, you know, your lifestyle. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Okay. One last piece of advice for the over-optimizers out there, and it is to add a little bit of in inefficiency to your life, <laughs> you know, like mess things up a little bit, go off script, Get your hands dirty. Put, put the trackers away, <laughs> say yes to something you wouldn't normally do. Wasn't there a book on that? I think uh, Shonda Year of Yes. Yeah. Shonda wrote that? Yeah. Yeah. The Year of Yes. Pull a Shonda. I think that's what it was called. I think, yeah. Because she was the one who said, I've been telling myself no, no to all this stuff. And I know, she's a books. billionaire. I, I'm not, I'm not co-signing the book, but I do agree with that message. Like say yes to something that you would normally say no to. And, and the reason why I say that is because it, it introduces almost like a pop quiz into your brain a little bit. And it yeah. ensures that like your problem solving skills and your creativity skills, like don't get rusty. Like travel does that for us. It allows us to see places that are different from our, from our home and solve for problems that we wouldn't normally have to solve for. But like, it also makes me think of, I think it was 2007 when I studied abroad. I studied abroad twice in college, but in grad school, I studied abroad in Japan. We spent about two weeks in Japan Long story short, the goal of it was to study business in Japan and the differences in the culture and all that stuff. And I remember being so blown away by like how different the culture was and being drawn to certain aspects of the culture. There's a particular term called Kaizen, and it's this idea of improvement or continuous improvement, like almost like an obsession with focusing on optimizing and making things better. And at the time, again, I was younger, I was so like blown away by that. I was like, wow, like that's a cultural nugget, something that doesn't really exist in America. And quite honestly, they were saying that back then there were companies, Toyota, for example, is a notable example of one that has business operations here in the U.S. and has incorporated those things to their benefit. Long story short, back then I heard that phrase and identified with it and thought like, wow, nothing but good can come from that. 
And then now that I'm a little bit older, I'm looking back and also looking back at some of the other examples and saying, all right, what happens to the companies that really, really did that? Did they make it? Did they eventually become what we now know as like the Amazons and the Googles of the world? And the answer is no, right? And so when you look back on that and you read some of these articles and you see actually there was a downside to being so rigorously obsessed with this idea of continuous improvement. It ruins team morale in some mm-hmm. cases. It drains people, leads to burnout. It creates disjointed communications because you can never quite tell the extent to which one team or one person on a team is bought into that concept versus another. It makes people obsessed with short-term improvements, which we might assume all leads to focus on the long-term, but in many cases, it just doesn't, right? And so when you think about that kind of concept, and you think about this idea of being overly optimized and being obsessive and seeing it as such a virtuous thing, I really want you to think about some of the other sides where you might not even have any inputs. Your partner may not be telling you that they don't like these things, or they may just be telling you, I don't really enjoy these budget meetings. And you may be defining it as, oh, she doesn't like math or he doesn't, you know, is not responsible. And in reality, it could be that like your communication during those yeah, periods didn't pass the is vibe the thing check. that is <laughs> yeah. creating disruption. Or I don't like the energy in the house after that because it takes away from the moments of peace that we tend to enjoy. Or it's not a real meeting. There's no room for us to adjust. It's like Correct. a readout, which is not the same as like a co-partnership where we can right. decide, yeah, like, yeah, we saved a bunch of money, but it didn't. Right feel good. And sometimes it's not going to feel good, but there still should be a forum that you can say that. I'll use a very specific example. This particular podcast, we were supposed to have recorded two, three hours ago. (laughs) True. The old me would have said, well, wow, you know, why did we miss that appointment? Why didn't (laughs) we do that? But something happened and we decided that, you know what, like actually it's more important for us to stop, go take a walk, come back and see how we feel. And it's fine. And we can record that podcast. And I would say, I'm happy with the way this turned out versus what I suspected <laughs> that conversation would have turned Facts. out. This is a lot better. So you're welcome. And here we are. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to some final thoughts. You ready? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. So my final thought is going to introduce a little nuance to the chat. because big, big surprise here. I know. Switch it up at the end. <laughs> Because I think balance, quote unquote, the balance that we're talking about actually depends on the goal. There are some goals where extreme efficiency is the point. So I'm thinking things like trading, right? You need to be able to buy and sell at lightning speeds and factoring in a qualitative aspect around how you feel at the moment diminishes the whole point. Another example might be paying off a credit card before the 0% interest is up or taking advantage of the last year of employment, right? You should absolutely optimize for those types of goals. But if the goal is bigger than that, and if there's any sort of personal component involved, whether it's purpose or fulfillment or self-awareness, like this month's success issue, if there's any sort of personal component involved, it's so important to make sure that your optimization doesn't cost you too much in the long run, because that's just hustling backwards. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I will also say you stole my final thought. And so I'm scrambling a little bit to think about what I want (laughs) to say. But what is top of mind is what we know is affecting a lot of people right now. So we know student loan payments have restarted and that might be disrupting a couple of people's personal finances or their ability to stay on budget. We know that record uh, credit card debt was just announced, right? So multiples of trillions of dollars in credit card debt. As a result, credit card companies are not being our friends right now. They're increasing interest rates and so on. All of these things are outside of your control. 
right? There's nothing you can do. It is not a reflection on your capabilities or your motivations. And so if you're an over-optimizer, these are things that you really just need to accept and pivot from, but you really kind of need to bite those things on the bullet. And if anything, figure out a way to still stay on task. But again, this is not something you can optimize because we're talking about the powers that be and things that are just not under your control. So stay positive. In fact, enjoy the break. Thank yeah. them for doing that and saying, you know what, maybe this is an opportunity for me to Find think your twice about where I want to allocate some of my budget so that I can accommodate for a higher interest rate right. than I did a few months ago. So that would be my final thought. Yes, I love it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success. Speaking of balance, we've got a 4.9 rating on Apple Podcasts. And the one thing that balances the people who don't like this podcast are the people who do. So if you like what you heard or got any value from today's episode, please take a few minutes to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next week. 